Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here. Today's episode of Full Potential Now is the third and final episode in our three-part miniseries, California Addiction Diaries. Part 3, Dalton. In this special collaboration with award-winning filmmaker and director Steve Balderson, we'll hear unique stories of addiction and recovery from the Golden State. We'll also hear expert commentary from licensed mental health and addiction counseling veteran and Full Potential Now host, Ted Isidore. Don't go anywhere. I like to know about where people come from, you know, about how they grew up, because even just a little bit of a backstory so that we can get an idea to paint a picture of who this person is. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I'm Dalton, and uh, I live here in Los Feliz, and I am 46 years old. I um, got sober at 2021, so I have 25 years of sobriety. In my younger years i grew up outside of houston and i actually like i was actually able to drink since i was a young kid um in, in my parents household it was allowed it was like all you do there in texas <laughs> and so yeah and so um and then when my parents divorced my mom remarried and then moved out here to the bay area in California. And so, um, shortly after that, I moved out there with her. Um, and so, and then I lived in the Bay area for like 27, 28 years. Um, and then those last five years I lived in San Francisco proper, um, before I moved to LA and I'm going into my sixth year now here in LA. He was drinking at such a young age and encouraged by his family that it wasn't sort of a, it didn't happen later on. You know, it was something that that he had at the beginning. Um, I want to also find out what substance or substances that they were addicted to. Um, I'm, I'm curious if I ask the question, and is it different for each person? If I say, what substance were you addicted to? That makes it sound like they're, they're no longer addicted anymore, so it's behind them and they might become addicted again. Whereas if I ask what substances are you addicted to, even if they're in recovery? Uh, I know some people prefer to use the language in that way to make it more present. Like it's, it's, it's an ongoing thing that will always be there for their entire lives. So was alcohol the, the only substance that you were addicted to? No. So, I mean, I did, you know, addicted to yes. So <laughs> anything, you know, that I could get my hands on, I, I did. Um, or even if I didn't know what it was, I would take it and not even really care what it was. From mushrooms to LSD to Coke, uh, definitely marijuana, um, and crank. They called it crank back then. That's really what my main downfall was. Um, then I, I want to know what it's like being an addict. I, I really want to be careful not to offend or not to ask any kind of question that might be something that has crossed a line that they're really, really not either capable of answering because they haven't dealt with it yet, maybe, or maybe it's something that um, they have dealt with, but that it's so personal they can't bear to discuss it. I mean, like I said, I grew up drinking and using my whole life. I started using meth like around 16, 
And then the paranoia started setting in like around uh, 19 uh, years old. So for me, it's really natural to want to ask and find out and learn and explore. But I forget that other people who weren't raised that way may not really have an interest or because it's something so unfamiliar, it's really, really hard for them to just sort of open up. And, and I'm pretty surprised always at when people just open up unexpectedly and make something become magic just out of being honest and truthful with who they are inside. It's inspiring. Um, then I, I want to know, how was their rock bottom? What was it? You know, was it just one thing or was it a series of things? You know, what was it exactly? Or how did you know that you needed help? You know, it's those kinds of questions. And then I, I want to find out what was their first step in finding it? You know, I started thinking, okay, well, I think I probably have a problem. Like I was about, you know, I was about 19, 20. I was thinking, man, I probably have a problem. Because the, the friends that I partied with that I thought had a problem started telling me, hey, we think that you have a problem. He's very, very smart. And he knew that there was a problem. And he looked into solving it himself. You know, that was his first step was sort of investigating his mind and, you know, finding out, you know, what could he do on his own. Here's Ted. Actually, the research is that 10% of people with an alcohol or drug addiction will actually show up at treatment doors. Um, the other 90% are either running around addicted or half of those people are actually treating themselves. And mm -hmm. in the midst of treating themselves, they make attempts. So in the thousands of people I've like worked with, what you really discover when you ask them their stories is when they show up in treatment, that's not their first rodeo. They've actually attempted this so many different times and people are not dumb about this they make changes in from plan a to plan b to try to be successful and it's almost as if and i'll be honest and this is just in my in, in my experience it's almost as if people have to try it on their own before they can reach out for help now back to dalton so what i did is i tried different things on my own to stop. Um, and that included like talking to my mom. I was like, mom, I think this is a problem. And she said, well, you worry about yourself and I'll worry about myself. <laughs> wow. So she said, yeah. I thought, well, maybe if I watch the preacher guy on TV talk about religion, maybe I'll get religion. Um, I also was in, you know, community college then and took a psychology class thinking maybe if I could figure out the inner workings of my brain, that that would somehow fix me. So I, like, I tried all these outside things uh, first to get sober. And um, I even, my, my middle brother, uh, his girlfriend at the time, I was pretty close friends with her. I would even tell her, hey, don't let me, don't let me use it. Like, I'm trying to stop. And, you know, she's still using. So, of course, that didn't work, you know. I wanted to know if he had support of friends and family. And, you know, the, the report was that he did have some but it seemed to me that the only people who were supporting him were the new people he met. You know, it, all the old people, for the most part, were just enablers or in denial of the fact that he was taking care of himself. Ted had this to say. 
Yeah, and when you talked about enablers, I thought you just totally nailed it. It's kind of the issues that probably sometimes aren't talked about in treatment and recovery groups, especially mm -hmm. like from the therapeutic end when they go to clinics and stuff. But this idea that it's really um, a twist, there's twists and turns in the journey of recovery. And you'd think like, oh, I'm in recovery, everybody's going to be supportive of me. So when I went to that drug and alcohol program that I was referred to, um, you know, they said, hey, you know, we, you can't drink or use 24 hours prior to the meeting. So I wasn't quite ready then. Um, I was probably like around October. Um, and what I would do is I would, uh, October of 94. And so what I would do is I would drink and use 24 hours prior to the, the, group, the group of one-on-one -on -one sessions. And they say, well, we're not going to be able to help you unless you help yourself. So they knew, right? They could tell. Um, and so I said, okay. So then in November 94, um, that's when I started going to meetings. And um, I was still living at home at the time. And the only way that my stepdad knew how to really relate to me was, um, you know, to still offer me drugs and alcohol. And, you know, I came out and got sober at the same time during that period. And shortly thereafter, my parents asked me to move out. And so my counselor at the time at that center said, well, it's probably the best thing for you. You just don't know it yet. <clears throat> but it's like, I don't, I didn't know how to like look for a place to live. You know, yeah, I look in the newspaper. So luckily I had a really good sponsor to like guide me through all because um, my brain was shot. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to do it. Once I started going to meetings, then um, that's when I started to get more plugged in. I didn't understand anything that was being said. I couldn't relate to it. All I heard was keep coming back. That's all I understood. And, and, and what, what kept me going back was that the people seemed to have a problem, a solution to their drinking and using problem that I did not have. And so that was very admirable to me. So that's what kept me going back to meetings. I'm excited that Dalton was able to find a group of people that did support him and that helped him and guided him through to make the, you know, the sort of transition into finding his life that he needed for himself. Um, and I wish that, I hope others other people have that um, it's always really really sad when when they're sort of left at it you know they're sort of just kicked out and they're just shunned and they're just put over there and they're all alone so how does one eventually come to terms with an addiction does it happen overnight probably not do they engage in a recovery process over time probably yes do they take two steps forward and one step back sometimes? Yes. Might they discover AA or NA meetings as being a helpful tool for the recovery? Yes, for some, no for others. For the ones that discover AA as a vital tool for their recovery, they will probably engage in some sort of 12-step process, which will include not just going to meetings, but getting a sponsor, working the 12 steps, and what I think is the pot of gold of the 12 steps for those of 
you who gravitate towards those is that they provide a structured way to work on your recovery. So what happens so often is people will probably complete conventional outpatient or intensive outpatient residential treatment in about six months. Then they are sort of like turned loose and they are encouraged to develop community support and have a good sobriety and relapse prevention plan. But ultimately, the proof is in the pudding at that point. Because if they can't line up the right kinds of supports to maintain sobriety long term, they might have a tendency to fall back. So AA, working the 12 steps, is a crucial part of that. And what I like about the 12 steps, and if you get a sponsor, if, if that's your gig and it really helps you, then that will provide the structure for you to always be thinking about your recovery and what you're working on. At first when I was going, you know, I was still living with my parents. So they, were, they weren't accepting of me being gay. You know, they weren't, they were still partying, so they couldn't support me getting clean and sober. So it was really a safe haven. The rooms were really a safe haven for me. And, um, and you know, I made new friends that did not drink and use which helped me get clean and sober. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Did you have, did you have any uh, of your friends, like your, your earlier friends that, that were supportive or were they all enablers? Yeah, no, they were supportive. One friend in particular that I hung out with a lot and partied with, um, he, when I would go over to his house, oddly enough, at that time, he was dating my girlfriend from high school <laughs> but um but he would offer me like a soda or something like that he was very supportive the only time i saw my parents was around the holidays and even then it was for very limited a time like first maybe it was like 15 minutes and then the next year i could do like half an hour like it was very like i couldn't be around it what's your relationship with them like today great yeah, it's awesome now. My my dad, well, he, I call him my dad. He's my dad who raised me. My mom was pregnant with me when she met my dad who raised me. So I don't know my biological father. But that dad, he passed away about 10 years ago. And um, we started forming a great relationship uh, those past couple of years before he passed away. And then, and then now, like I, I speak with my mom very regularly. Um, they don't really party now, you know what I mean? So they're getting up there in age. So I think that slowed them down a bit. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, but it took several years. And <clears throat> I remember I probably had like one year sober. And my counselor at the time, she suggested, you know, you, she suggested I tell my mom that I can't have the kind of relationship that I want with her if she's going to continue to be using. So I just, I had to completely, like I found a new, new family and new friends with program people. And, you know, once she stopped that, started going around more. And um, it still took a while to come around for me being gay. Um, and in fact, actually, on my first 11 years, so at the holidays, I said I'd just be with them very little bits of time at the holidays, because yeah. I think it was like the first 11 years of my sobriety, my stepdad would still have, offer me a shot, knowing very well that, I mean, again, that was his only way of knowing how to relate to me. 
And so wow. and I literally ran out of ways of telling him not to ask me. <laughs> wow. And so finally, like to this day, like now he doesn't offer anymore. So, yeah. What was the best and the worst part of the whole experience of going through be, and becoming sober? So, so in in the literature, they, they say that um, we stood at the turning point, right? And and for me, standing at that turning point was difficult because I didn't know how I was going to live life with drugs and alcohol, but I also didn't know how I was going to live life without drugs and alcohol. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I think that that was the hardest part. Um, and, you know, I mentioned initially, I tried several vain attempts on my own. So I, I think that that was not having initially that social support and just trying to like, find my way around in the dark of like, how do I get help? And how do I do this? I think that that was the most challenging part. Um, um, actually, and then what was equally challenging is once I did put it down, then of course, all the all the feelings come to the surface, right? So basically don't have any that coping mechanism any longer. So learning, so I would say that's actually the worst and the best part. Because then the best part is that I got to learn what those coping mechanisms are and how do I apply the steps in my life. You know, when I, when I was drinking and using, literally drugs and alcohol were the daily center of my everyday life. Like no matter what I was doing all the time, I had to have something in my system. And so the fact that I no longer have the compulsion or obsession to want to pick up, how that's been completely lifted, I would say that those would be like the worst and best parts. What, what is something that you've learned about yourself sober that you, you never knew before? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think starting to have more confidence in myself and being more comfortable in my own skin because I was not comfortable in my own. I would go to meetings and I would just be, I would be self-conscious of getting up to walk across the room and go to the bathroom, you know, like, I was like, Oh my God, everybody's looking, you know, I am not the center of the universe. You know what I mean? But that's how I felt I was. I was the piece of shit that was the center of the universe. So like those extremes, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so we learning that like a lot, I've learned a lot of things about myself. Like, Oh man, I felt like, you know, there were inferiority and superiority complexes going on. So learning how to be humble, you know, learning how to have humility in my life. So having that acknowledgement that growth is possible and that change is inevitable <laughs> and, and, and how I adapt to those changes has varied depending on my position and my state at the time. Um, but I have found that no matter what hardships I've gone through, like I always like try my best that even if it, I didn't deal with it the best way I wish I would have, like I still like give myself permission to wipe the slate clean and try again. Amazing. That's one of my, that's one of my favorite um, 
things to tell people is just, you know, you can make a choice and if you're not happy with the results, you can always choose again. You know, you never you Exactly. Yes. And that's through experience. Like I would go a lot of my early sobriety was like, okay, this is how I handled it. This is how I envision how I wish I would like to respond to it next time. And then kind of look internally to, um, and, you know, take those opportunities next time they come around because there are plenty of growth opportunities. They're around us. They're around me all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, for sure. Um, do you have any advice for anyone who could be listening to this that might be wanting help, but unsure about how to go about finding it? Yeah. So I can really appreciate the skepticism first of all, and also the fear of the unknown, uh, uh, fear of the unknown of if, am I able to do this thing? Can I make this change in my life? I think the big important question is to say, am I done? Because if there are any reservations, it's not going to work. And am I doing this for myself or someone else? Mm. Um, I have found that it has to be for myself. Um, you know, my son is, my son was born in August of 94. And so I came out and got seen and sober shortly after he was born. And so I got sober for me. Yes. Him being born was an impetus for me, you know, to get clean and sober and then also go back to school. But I really got clean and sober for myself. You know, it, you, there's nothing to lose by seeking help. You could always go back and return to using again if you want to, you know, but uh, if, if, if you feel like there's, you know, that drinking in or using is a problem, in in your life then uh you know maybe talking to someone we all know you know a lot more people are in recovery these days you know so maybe talking to someone that they know that they can trust because that's going to be another huge factor is trust right so facing the fear of the unknown and having someone to trust to talk to through that i think is huge and so uh because some people may have a hard time just going to room completely full of strangers to get help. So, um, you know, tagging along with someone that they know is in recovery and maybe going to a meeting with them or talking to them first um, mm. could be very helpful. Do you have any ongoing wellness practices that you've developed that also help? You know, I certainly do meditation um, and uh pretty, pretty regularly, my, my own version. Um, and I exercise quite regularly. And so finding ways, like I know for me, like nature, like I really tap into nature, like my, you know, for sounding too corny, my spirit sings, you know, when I'm in nature. So I know that that connects me. So finding those things where I feel connected, and passionate, like engage in those activities. Well, you are a rock star. You're amazing. And I uh, really appreciate you talking to me about all this today. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sure. Yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah, cool. this, this is great. 
Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here again. Thank you so much to the guests of the California Addiction Diary series for sharing their stories with us. Today's interview was conducted by director and filmmaker Steve Balderson with editing by Jimmy Cohen. To learn more about Steve's work, visit dikenga.com. That's D-I-K-E-N-G-A.com. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. Thanks for listening.